You're listening to The Peace Corner with a group of young, peace-hungry interns at GPAC, the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict. In a world riddled with violent conflict, peace can feel elusive and peace building can sound abstract. We want to change that with The Peace Corner. Who are the people breaking away from the discourses of hate and violence and transforming the status quo? What personally drives these people to peace building? There are many stories of peace, some which inspire us, fill us with hope, and others which make us hungry for change. Each podcast, we talk to a different peace builder about their own personal experience in the field, from Nicaragua to Palestine and beyond. This is a chance to hear from the people putting themselves on the line for peace, the people who remain steadfast in their pursuit of more peaceful societies, and who incidentally are delightful to talk to. So nestle into a corner and listen to the voices making peace possible. There are little places in the world shrouded with as much mystery as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Our understanding of this lonely country usually surrounds a government which isolates itself and its citizens in its own understanding of the world. Imagine that my surprise when I heard that one of our very members is engaging with civil society in that country. Imagine that my double surprise that one of such members would be in The Hague in our office. With such a unique opportunity, I just had to sit down with Mary Joyce to discuss the ins and outs of this peculiar engagement. As I prepared for this interview, I came across Mary's unique work environment, the Peace Boat. Yes, it is a peace boat. The name sounds exactly what it is, a boat cruise that goes around the world furthering the mission of peace building. Curious? Well, so was I. Hi everyone, welcome to the Peace Corner. I'm Rafael and I'm sitting today with Mary from Peace Boat and we are going to have a chat about their work in Northeast Asia and a bit of the work of Peace Boat itself. So hi Mary, welcome to the Peace Corner. Hey, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Um, Why don't you start us off by introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. So as you've mentioned, my name is Mary Joyce. Uh, I'm based at an organization called Peace Boat, which is a Tokyo-based international NGO, and we're coordinating the Northeast Asia network of GPEG. Cool. And and you are in, in Japan, but your background is from Australia, correct? That's right. Yes, yeah. yes. How did you get to that? Like, what was the journey to get to Japan and to be working at Peace Boat? Sure. It was a lot of coincidences along the way. <laughs> yeah. There was never really a definite decision that was made. But yeah. I first studied in Japan, actually, when oh, I was okay. in high school and mm-hmm. then university as well. And found myself going back more and more and then turned around one day and... And there you are. That's it. Yep. <laughs> and the work that you guys are doing with uh, GPAC Northeast Asia, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you're working with the Korean Peninsula, correct? That's right, yeah. So we're based in Tokyo, but mm-hmm. within the GPAC Northeast Asia network, uh, we have members um, in Tokyo, in Kyoto, in Seoul, Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, Taipei, and Hong Kong, as well as also Ulaanbaatar and Vladivostok, so Mm -hmm. including Mongolia and Far East Russia in the network, which is quite unusual, I think. And we also have partners in Pyongyang in North Korea who we're working with as well. That's very unique. Yeah, it's it's quite unusual, of course, having their participation, but also having such an inclusive and really comprehensive network in the Mm -hmm. region is something that I think is quite unique to GPAC. For sure. And with the partnerships in Pyongyang, how did they come about? Sure. Um, over a lot of time and a lot of building up relationships and, um, and sort of coming to 
common agreement in terms of uh, shared acknowledgement that in order to actually resolve any of the issues that are being faced both on the Korean Peninsula but in Northeast Asia mm-hmm. in general, that we really need to have a space for citizens from the whole region to come together and actually even just start to have a conversation about right, these issues. Yeah, the basis of dialogue. Exactly. Yeah, because uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a region that we don't really think much about the dialogue of the people itself, right? And that has to happen. It's true, it's true. And I mean, it's a region where the historical legacies from, Mm -hmm. you know, the Japanese colonial history in the region, the lack of uh, reconciliation following World War II and a lot of real tensions uh, amongst the states in the region are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, I mean, in the case of North Korea is a very strong example there. But, you know, there's not diplomatic relations with a lot of the countries in the region. There's still the ongoing conflict, the division of the Korean Peninsula and Mm so on. So within those structures, we often think of it as it's really one of the parts of the world where the Cold War is still going on. And this actually really has a huge impact on the relations of citizens in the region as well. Mm -hmm. Even in those countries which are quite friendly in some ways, there is um, not much space for exchange, even just on you know the cultural or personal yeah. levels as well. So even That's just starting that conversation is is something we find really important. That's fascinating because being like I'm from Brazil, I'm based mm. in Europe. Like I've never actually had that much contact with the region, but sure. you don't really think about how there actually still is such a differentiation from the people itself. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um you know when you're looking at it from the outside, it, it's very mm-hmm. easy to see you know it's things happening all in a certain part of the world, right. and they're very I mean there's very close historical ties at the yeah. same time. But mm-hmm. the the impacts and the legacies from that period of colonialism and then World War II is still very strong in the region, actually. Interesting. And you've been working there for some time now. Like how, looking back, because, I mean, I've, you've been there for what, 10 years, uh, even yeah. a bit longer? Which, a little bit longer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so looking back uh, when you started and looking now, how do you think things changed? Sure. Well, I mean, I think in the experience of GPAC, I I joined quite soon after GPAC was launched. Um, But of course, there'd been several years of leading up to that in the network Mm -hmm. um, and within both the region and globally as well. But um, I mean, in terms of the participation from North Korea, for example, in the first few years, it was... Um, very difficult to even have sort of communication channels and to try mm. and and get, you know, even messages going back and forth and so on. However, in recent years, we've been able to lead up to actually the point where we have very regular uh, contact, very regular participation in our annual regional meetings, mm-hmm. in different exchange programs that we're organizing, in trainings and so on even as well. So I think... It shows that these kind of building up the networks in regions where relations are so tense um, mm-hmm. takes a lot of time and yeah. it might seem like things are not really moving much at all. But if you're willing to be able to stay stay patient and sort of continue to, to reach out and create that kind of space, then eventually it is possible to start to at least at least do something with that. And what kind of impacts have you seen already from that engagement with North Korea in terms of like mindset change or even just like... I don't know, um, shared humanity maybe between the participants of these workshops? Like what has some some results that you've seen? Sure. I mean, I think when, when you come into a situation like this, it's there's such little or limited information available out about yeah. each other. I that's, mean, even, even when, you know, you're only a few hundred kilometers away by distance to order to actually have any direct information about, you know, how citizens in Pyongyang are seeing the situation, um, when there are these, you know, huge things that we're seeing on the news every day, you know, we see about the different military aspects, we see about the, the tensions and the ups yeah. and downs on the state relations side of thing. But to actually have an opportunity to hear how that is seen by people on the ground, how that affects their lives, how, 
you know, in terms of the the government level side of things, but also even in terms of, you know, the sanctions that are being put in by the UN, for example, what impact that actually has on local organizations that are trying to do humanitarian work Mm. in terms of, you know, health or humanitarian things, disaster relief, these sorts of things as well. So being able to have that direct conversation, um, even if you're not agreeing on everything, and Mm. most of the time, you know, we're not, that's that's the beauty of a network like this, it is being able to bring together groups with different positions. Um, but have a chance for actually just learning about each other, learning about where they're coming from, what are the historical backgrounds and the, the sort of reasons that have brought us to the situation we're in today. Yeah. Oh, well, and I mean, you kind of already touched on to a bit onto the point of my next question, which was about, this is a conflict where it's very high level political. You know, we see very much statesmen's games here and there. Um, but what we often forget is about the local grassroots level and how that reconciliation and that conversations and that peace building process from bottom up will also have to happen in the future, yeah. or at least like that's what we assume from our perspective. So, mm-hmm. how do you see that happening happening you know in the future, and can it even happen? Is it just so far fetched in the future that we have to do one step at a time? Yeah. What's the role for grassroots peace building in such a highly politicized context? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the ongoing challenges. But mm. it's also, I mean, I think those kind of cultural exchanges on a very small level has for many years been really the only platform that there has been that kind of opportunity for engagement. Um, even you know, prior to the launch of GPAC as a network, Peace Boat, for example, had been organizing youth exchanges, cultural exchanges, sports exchanges, oh, and wow. so on in the region broadly, but also including North Korea. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shows that when there is these complete stalemates on the political situation, it is some kind of an opportunity to at least keep the channels open. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found in the past year, um, where we have finally actually seen some positive developments on the political level or you know the so-called state level mm-hmm. about the Korean Peninsula, it's meant that thanks to there being these different you know cultural level exchanges, citizens' engagements and so on in place, it's meant that once there is finally positive movements, there's mm-hmm. already a space where conversations about how to make the most of that opportunity or how to how civil society organizations can work to help support the implementation of these agreements which are being made. And because without the buy-in of the citizens in any of the countries yeah. involved, there's no way that mm-hmm. these agreements are going to be anything more than a piece of paper. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, like we hear so little about the local grassroots movement from the outside. And so, mm-hmm. so for us... I can only speak for myself, but having studied political science for the past four years, I have never even thought that that was a layer <laughs> of work, but it, it very much is. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's that. it's very, very small steps, mm-hmm. very, you know, it, it may sometimes be hard to feel that there is much being achieved, but I think yeah. just keeping that that persistence and keeping it going means that when there can be actually developments, then you're in place to be able to somehow support that from from moving forward more. And from you and from your personal context, like, do you have any like anecdote of, or like any um, little, not story, but I want to say like a moment that comes to your mind when you're seeing that engagement of <laughs> someone who is so far away? Oh, that's a good question. Where to start? <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of the small situations as well. There's with these kind of dialogues or citizens' engagements and so on. Of course. The, the different discussions that you have within the meeting rooms are always important, having a sense of, you know, the political aspects or historical aspects and so on. But I think most of the time it's the really small sideline things that are going on where, you know, you're 
in a situation and, you know, in the coffee break you see, you turn around and you have your North and South Korean participants taking a selfie together, you know, with yeah. in a situation where in normal, normal context, it's completely impossible for them to even be in the same room. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we've, you know, we're sitting here in The Hague at the moment. We've had a series of exchange visits for our partners from Pyongyang to come to The Hague to learn about how civil society works, how different oh, wow. international organizations based here in The Hague are working and mm-hmm. so on. And I remember... Um, The first such visit we organized, we had one of the quite senior participants who was coming from the DPRK, and we had some time to also uh, visit some of the museums here as well during a free day off on the weekend. And remember, he was standing in front of one of the Rembrandt paintings and said he'd seen this painting for 40 years in his life and never thought there would ever be a time when he'd actually see it in person. Yeah, I mean, the fact that... You can Create. facilitate those kind of human moments and showing mm-hmm. how culture and art can, can go beyond borders in this kind of way is something yeah. that shows kind of what what a human network like GPEC can do. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, and actually that's a good point segueing to this other part of the conversations that I wanted to talk to you about, which is actually about Peace Boat and the work that you guys do with Peace Boat. Yeah. Because um, this role of culture and this role of... Um, Mutual understanding from the website state <laughs> yeah. seems a lot. That that's what's the a bit of the core of Peace Boat. So, can you, for the people who have no idea what Peace Boat is, can yeah. you tell us a bit of what it is? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think as you said, that's very much the fundamental principles or the background of what drives um, what we do as Peace Boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Peace Boat is a Japanese NGO. It was started by a group of university students in Japan back in 1983. Mm-hmm. So, we're just on our 35th anniversary this year. Happy anniversary! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at the time, it was when there was a real um, increase in tensions between Japan and its neighbors over a, a controversy about history textbooks, actually. Okay. Um, there were some very strong protests going on in, in China and Korea and other parts of the region um, when Japan made some changes to its history textbooks. So sort of, you know, getting rid of the words invasion and changing it to advancement or, or mm-hmm. these kind of mm-hmm. things. So these Japanese students were seeing on the news every day these protests, you know, people out on the streets. But of course, in what they were in their media, they weren't really understanding what it was that people were getting mad about. Mm-hmm. So they decided they wanted to go firsthand, talk to students in some of these other Asian countries. But at the time, being in 1983, they couldn't afford to get on a plane and travel. So they found themselves traveling by boat to different countries in the Asia Pacific. First uh-huh. of all, just thinking it was the cheaper method of transportation. But yeah. then once they actually got on board, they realized that the space when you're at sea, where you're not belonging to any particular country, any national borders, it's nobody's space. So actually using that for different workshops and dialogue and cultural events was really useful. So from there, they started to organize these trips quite regularly, growing from a small group to several hundred people to a thousand people. And then in the 90s, they started to move from rather than just one-off trips in the Asia Pacific and just looking at peace and reconciliation issues, Mm -hmm. also seeing how this is all linked also with sustainability, with the environment, with economic justice, and so moved to organizing global voyages from there. So now we organize three global voyages each year with 1,000 people on board um, and also regional voyages as well, which sort of looking back at the roots and the sort of Northeast Asian reconciliation side of things too. And what's the makeup of that crowd? Sure. It's um, it's majority Japanese, uh-huh. um, but in the past few years that's been um, 
expanding to a lot of other people from other Asian countries as well. So even mm-hmm. on board, we also have quite a lot of people from mainland China, from Singapore, from Taiwan. So it's also that kind of living together in that yeah. space is in itself, you know, a peace building process as For we're sure. going along. <laughs> um, it's a mix of not only young people and not only people who are already interested in these global issues. Um, yeah. Some people are coming on more for a way to see the world in a kind of different way, yeah. whereas some people are really coming on because they're joining our campaigns or, you know, in support of the different sort of more activist side of things that we're doing as well. So it's quite diverse. And you go on these global voyages around around the world, around these different ports, and in each of them, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you have engagements with local organizations and local partners. Exactly. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's So right. how do you guys uh, work together with them? And do you, is there like um, before and after process how does how does that work with the people on board sure sure it's um it's quite organic um and it varies in terms of you know some of the ports we visit very regularly several times Mm -hmm. a year whereas sometimes it may be only once every few years and so on um we organize sometimes it's more study programs so you know field visits or exposures sometimes it's symposiums at universities or with students um, and sometimes also joint advocacy or campaigns so we also like to see how the ship can be used by our local partners in a way, whether it's to attract more media attention for the work that they're doing, whether it's a way to show international solidarity or support for a campaign they may be doing locally. Mm-hmm. And we actually do a lot of this with GPEC partners around right. the world as yeah. well. Of course, being part of this network means that we already have these great connections and people mm-hmm. that we're working with um, around the world. So, you know, whether we go to you know Fiji or to Mexico or Colombia, we also work with GPEC partners in, in mm-hmm. those countries as well to see how the ship can be used as a space for supporting what they're doing locally oh, wow, that's really cool. and have you ever been to one of these voyages i'm I guessing have. you have i yeah. have several times several yeah. times yes. okay um i have so many questions about that <laughs> <laughs> so how does it feel to be on that environment with just like 1,000 people wanting to discuss about development and peace building but also wanting to explore the world it must be kind of this like surreal experience in a way it is it is i mean it's it's kind of like a floating village in a way as well you uh-huh. know you get people from from all backgrounds from uh, all generations as well okay. which is um one of the things that was most surprising to me when i first joined as well uh-huh. is that kind of discussions and exchange between people from you know generations generations, you know those who did experience the war for example to those who never even maybe knew that japan was at war with some of these other countries you know these Mm -hmm. kind of things as well um but yeah it's it all sorts of people on board Mm -hmm. um but it's quite it ends up a real you know three months at sea together you you do form quite a community by the end yeah Yeah. and there's also the the because japanese organization i'm assuming a lot of the language is Japanese, but also um, English. Yeah. How is that language? Language is a tool for peace yeah, in that yeah. boat. Like, how does that work? Sure, yeah. That's actually how I first became involved in the organization. Okay. Uh, I joined as a volunteer interpreter on mm-hmm. board. Um, so, as you said, Japanese is the main language that's used on board, but we have a team of volunteers who are there to support, um, of course, translating or interpreting for the different lectures and workshops, which are being held by the guest speakers on board mm-hmm. and also with the different exchanges in the ports that we're visiting, but also the different you know, conversations and exchange between people as they're living together on the ship as well. So we've, um, we have teams of English and Spanish interpreters for that. And in recent years as well, also uh, Chinese and Korean too. So it's, it's a very, very big team of very hardworking volunteers wow. that make, make all of that happen. A question that kind of came up with that um, is also, you have this this cruise, which is going around the world mm-hmm. and it creating all of these spaces for engagement. And yeah. But on the other hand, you have 
this work with the region and, and we're engaging in North Korea and this dialogue mm-hmm. and mediation. So uh, as I was reading the website, I was like, but they do this and they do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it was a bit surprising to me how it, it, it can have such a different portfolio and still make yeah. sense into this one umbrella. So how does that work? Like, you yeah. know, you have a cruise on one hand, but you're also doing <laughs> like workshops and dialogues. So, uh, yeah. How did that come about? It's quite an unusual organization. Yeah, it's very unique. It's um, sometimes a little bit hard to, yeah. you know, just say in, in one phrase what it is that we do. Mm. But I mean, I think that what we really learn from these global voyages is how all of these issues are really connected together mm-hmm. and how Peace Boat itself can be a platform for bringing together different groups or different people who are working on different issues and, yeah. and show how it is all connected and how it can support support each other in that sense and having having a sort of backing of being a large enough organization with the institution of the voyages that we have means that we have perhaps more space to do some more mm-hmm. unusual or innovative things which is not necessarily possible for all all organizations i think the the main reason for that is as well is we run the voyages um, almost like a social business so mm-hmm. the income that we have from the voyages is yeah. what actually feeds into support all of our campaigns and advocacy and so on so yeah. it means we're completely self-sustainable. self-sustainable and independent on that so we're not reliant on donor preferences mm-hmm. or any of this kind of thing which when you're working with countries like north korea is crucial for sure yeah yeah that that was actually something that i was interested in asking as well like you have found a way of making peace not commercial not commercial but you to make it commercially viable or sustainably viable and make having it, yeah <laughs> and having a way of because i think that's the issue that main a, a lot of our like i'm i, I will go on the limbs yeah. 95 percent of our members have that issue how do yeah. you make continue to have sustainable um yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's always a challenge as well, the mm-hmm. the balance between yeah. ensuring that you're commercially viable as the social business, but mm-hmm. at the same time, being able to ensure that that's not taking over everything or, you know, dictating that sort of thing as well. So, I mean, as an as an organization where we're the largest NGO in Japan, especially in terms of staff numbers, uh-huh. we have probably close to 150 full-time staff, oh, wow. which on the surface level sounds huge. But when you also think about operating cruises with 500, <laughs> sorry, 5,000 passengers every year, there's a huge amount of staff time and, and work and energy goes into, of course, that logistical and mm-hmm. operations and working with the different participants who are coming on board as well. So mm-hmm. it, it, there's always a, a challenge of, you know, division of time and resources within the organization too. But it means that, you know, we can be fully independent and flexible as well. You mm-hmm. know, we can, you know, just answering to ourselves rather than having to work on donor cycles and right. that sort of thing too. Oh, tell me when you come to the Hague yeah, <laughs> with <yeah>. the boat. <laughs> um, I think for me, last question. I mean, we can talk all day long, but um, another question, like I think, just a bit of a wrap up question from the from that voyage. Can you tell us one moment that you were like, "Okay, this is a very the aha moment. This is a very special." Sure. Special yeah. Um. Hmm, that's tricky. I guess one. One of the things which I think we're especially proud of how we've been able to use the voyages to contribute in in a larger way is our involvement in the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, um, which uh, was the very lucky recipient of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize Mm -hmm. last year. Um, So we have been working together as a core member of ICANN from quite early on. Um, But one of our main ways that we do that actually is we work with survivors 
from Hiroshima and Nagasaki who travel on board the peace boat and share their testimony in different countries that we're visiting, whether it's at schools with children's groups, whether it's to presidents of countries, whether it's at the United Nations. Um, but really using the ships actually directly visiting these places to create these human connections and, and share this, you know, firsthand experience of what nuclear weapons really means. Mm -hmm. So showing that these are not just weapons that we're talking about on a strategic level. They're not just things which are, you know, talked about on pieces of paper, but these are things which actually have these huge catastrophic impacts on people's lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, so ICANN was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize because of its role in, uh, bringing to realization the nuclear ban treaty at the UN last year. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that was also highlighting the humanitarian aspects of nuclear weapons. So I think by being able to use the ship actually physically traveling to different places yeah. and sharing these human perspectives and human stories was a way to help to support this this movement to really show the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. And so we're very, very proud of the role that we were able to have in achieving the nuclear ban treaty and then also mm-hmm. the work that ICANN's been continuing since then. And I guess also just allowing those stories to be heard right? and sharing those stories exactly. with people from all over the world. Exactly. Yeah, being able to physically transport that exactly. and, and have a chance to, to share that directly is really key. That's fascinating and very, very exciting, uh, exciting model uh, that you guys are working on. So, um, so thank you so much for sitting down with us and sharing a bit your your work and your life story. And thank you. It's been great to chat. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Peace Corner. Thank you for listening to the Voices Making Peace possible. Tune in next time when our youth peace and security intern Hilola talks to Darinero Rodriguez Torres about creating a culture of peace in Colombia.